Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on April 25th, 2019 at about half one London time. So I'll see if anything happened in the meantime for between recording and release. We were unable to cover it. As always, we are sponsored this season by IB Taurus and they're kindly offering you, all of our listeners, 35% off all their books in the Middle East and politics section from Bloomsbury.com. All you need to do is enter the discount code TALKINGIBT19 at the checkout. So that's all capital letters, TALKINGIBT, followed by the number 1919. If you want to find out anything that we do here on the Talking Terror podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast and follow me personally at Morrison underscore JF. And if you or anyone that you know would be interested in doing a master's in terrorism and counterterrorism studies, be sure to check out that very master's which we have on offer from September, October 2019 here at Royal Holloway University of London. There's, uh, if you go to our website or if you, even if you go into the description underneath this podcast, wherever you get it, you'll be able to uh, get more information about that. Just follow the link there in the description. Anyway, enough of all of that. It's time for today's podcast. It's my great pleasure to have on today's podcast Sean Arbutnot and William Balde. Sean is a local prevent coordinator, while William is a regional prevent coordinator here in the United Kingdom. And today's episode, we're going to be looking broadly at prevent. What is it? Uh, how does it operate? And some uh, and other questions uh, surrounding it as well. So, Sean, William, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. No problem. No problem. So, we've got an international listenership here. Not everyone will be aware fully of what Prevent is. So, what is it? What is Prevent? Well, um, Prevent is part of the UK government's counterterrorism strategy, which I'm sure most of your listeners will be familiar with. It's known as Contest. Um, divided into four main areas which are known as um, protect, prepare, pursue and prevent. So prevent is just one element in our counter-terrorism strategy, although you know, some would say that it takes maybe 99% of the conversation. I would say it takes about 3 or 4% of the funding, but that's another story. Um, but if we look at each of those in turn, I suppose protect deals with infrastructure, prepare deals with our response to terrorist attacks, and pursue deals with terrorist investigations. Prevent, as the name suggests, is about trying to prevent people from becoming involved or supporting terrorism in the first instance. And the way in which we try and do that is by identifying people who are vulnerable to extremism or radicalization. And with their consent, we would put in place wraparound care and support using a host of different agencies and safeguarding techniques to try and steer those individuals away from a path that could lead towards violence. Um, one of the other elements of PREVENT is that we try to um, build resilience to radicalization as well through various social outreach programs. We work with local communities, we work with organizations both locally and nationally to try and put in place programs, workshops, outreach, etc. to try and raise awareness of extremism and, and like I say build resilience against it. But one of the main things that I would like to stress about PREVENT is that even though it's part of this counter-terrorism landscape, it very much is a safeguarding issue. And I know that you know, people may have said that it's been deliberately framed in terms of safeguarding, 
potentially to make it more palatable to people. The reality is that not only has has Prevent evolved over the last number of years since it first came into being in order to reflect sort of uh, new and emerging threats, but I've worked in Prevent since 2013 and I was in the police actually when I first became involved. And when I entered the world of Prevent, I never felt less like a police officer. I felt more like a social worker, to be honest. It was the least policey job I ever had. Um, my arrest record for Northamptonshire Police, I'm proud to say, was probably the worst in the force. I didn't make a single arrest because everything that we did in Prevent revolved around helping vulnerable people with complex needs, working with mental health, working with social services, all of those different agencies. So the reality is, it sounds melodramatic to say that it's a counter-terrorism initiative. The reality is it's a, it's a safeguarding initiative. You mentioned the word vulnerability and safeguarding there. Is, by having a vulnerability narrative there, is this taking away the agency in a way of the individuals who have been, who are, are identified and come to the awareness of prevent? That's a really good question. Do you want to? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, we do have to be cautious around language and you can sort of sort of seize on a word like vulnerability and think that we, we see everyone as, as victims of some kind of grooming process. Uh, in this case, being groomed by kind of extremists that come to support position of sort of funding, facilitating or uh, enacting terrorism. Um, we don't take away the agency of the individual because once we get to um, what we call a channel uh, safeguarding board, a panel if you like of experts, we look at the individual and we look at exactly what factors are at play within their life. Now for a lot of the people, I would say for the majority of people, uh, they're very young, um, under 30s are massively overrepresented within the prevent space, uh, predominantly male, uh, I think over 80% of cases are, are male. Um, and we will look at whether they have been um, exploited uh, and had vulnerabilities within them exploited, often through a grievance narrative, which is very popular in all forms of radicalization, or whether, in fact, these are people with their own sense of agency who perhaps are the ones that are more inclined to, to, to cause the problems, to, to peddle the grievance narrative and, and exploit the grievances in others. But it's entirely case-specific. So that panel of experts will then consider what are the factors here that are at play? Is this somebody who has their own sense of agency who um, we need to reach out to and try and rein them in, if you like, uh, so they're not a harm to themselves or others? Or is this someone who's at the other end of that spectrum and actually is vulnerable for whatever reason, whether it's a mental health vulnerability, vulnerability uh, social factors, a psychological fracture, whatever it may be that's caused that. Even in someone with their own sense of agency, those factors can be at play. But the, the, the strength of a channel panel is because you've got such a wide range of disciplines and experts around the table, they can make that judgment. They can make that assessment. The reality of, of PREVENT, and I think a lot of international listeners will know it as either CVE or PBE, so Countering Violent Extremism, Preventing Violent Extremism. PREVENT is the UK brand, and essentially just an abbreviation of Preventing Violent Extremism. Um, what... what um, what they can do with, within, that, um, within that space is reach out and offer voluntary support to the individual. Now, if they have their own sense of agency, they may well just say, not interested. Thank you ever so much, but I'm not interested. There's a, there's a misconception that prevent is some kind of silver bullet that will prevent everyone from going on that journey, prevent everyone from becoming sort of attached to a terrorist or extremist narrative. It's simply not the case. We're kind of the last chance to offer a, a very soft 
consensual voluntary intervention to see if we can steer someone away from a life of of crime essentially because getting involved in terrorism is going to end up with a criminal record if you get caught if they decline that offer of help there's very little we can do and i think that concept doesn't really sit with with with, with the wider public they don't understand so we we get sort of tagged in, in things on social media or, or text message or whatsapps from communities saying why don't you prevent donald trump why don't you prevent tommy robinson well absolutely fine okay i'll email donald trump and i'll say would you like some free voluntary support from the uk's prevent strategy uh, and if he responds i imagine he would say no i very much doubt he would respond so i think we, we are we are sometimes given too too much sort of credence by the wider public that somehow we are this catch-all policy uh, that is going to suppress and stop extremism across the board and stop radicalization across the board. We are literally just the last chance to offer some kind of intervention. Because so many of the issues that present themselves in people that have been radicalized or are on that journey of radicalization are underlying factors and underlying vulnerabilities, actually we have a really good opportunity. And the success rate of those that take up the option uh, of an intervention through channel is somewhere in the region of 78 to 82% of all cases exit the process um, with no issues around extremism, radicalization or terrorism still there. So as a success rate, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And our benchmark for that is to revisit them in six months, revisit them in 12 months. If at the end of that final 12 month um, assessment, we, we feel and they feel it's been a successful journey, then shake hands and off you go. Um, they can re-enter the scheme, they can exit once it started, they can refuse to enter it full stop. It's completely consensual, completely fluid, and it's done with the, the permission and the consent of the person or their family that we're trying to support. So you mentioned the word radicalization a number of times here. What is the prevent understanding of radicalization? Um, yeah, so what's the, what, how would prevent view radicalization? Well, in, in my view, it's, um, it's an individual process, to be honest. It, it's different for, for each person. Every case I've ever dealt with is unique. Every individual has had their own personal grievances, issues and vulnerabilities. Uh, and no two are the same. And the way in which we would then, as a result, define radicalization is that it's essentially the process by which an individual comes to support or become engaged with terrorism. Would that be fair enough, Will? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, John, I don't like the word radicalization. Mm. Um, I mean, it was coined many moons ago. I, I can't remember who coined it. It may well have been an academic. I think it's it's a shortcut. It's a convenient word to describe a really com complex set of processes that are as unique to each individual person as, as their fingerprint. Um, as a word, it, it almost implies that being radical is a bad thing, and I disagree with that fundamentally. Um, I think radical is good, and I think we, we you know, certainly in 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 Leicester, where Sean and I have both worked, you know, we put forward projects with young people about reclaiming the word radical, so that they could be radical and could be seen as radical, and, and they could they could kind of take it away, if you want, from from kind of the, the policy language or the, or the language of extremists. Um, so as as a word, it serves a purpose, mm -hmm. but I think when we use the word, most of those of us who work within the prevent strategy we we understand it is just a shortcut for, for those processes in terms of what the radicalization of an individual is once it gets to that channel board we can unpick all the different aspects and facets of that process and try and understand where the wheel came off of that individual and why they started to attach themselves to an extremist narrative or a narrative that is othering certain individuals or groups with a view to causing them harm
So, Sorry, just to, yeah. um, Will mentioned the Reclaim Radical project mm. in Leicester, and that was a that was a really good initiative actually that was put together by young people within the city who felt that they had a voice and they wanted to be heard, but because of their background or their ethnicity, they were perceived as being one thing or another. And mm -hmm. as Will said, it was all about reclaiming the word radical, that it's okay to have these discussions, that it's okay to have controversial views, it's okay to be politically active. And one of the interesting videos that they actually put together was where a group of students were reciting a speech and some of the language in the speech was quite inflammatory. It was saying things about how our way of life is under attack, uh, the danger is never been more clear, we're at risk from a monolithic worldwide conspiracy. And out of the mouths of, of young, identifiably Muslim people, this seemed, you know, pretty hostile. But in actual fact, the speech was originally made in 1961 by John F. Kennedy. So it's an interesting example of how context and things like that are really important when it comes to, you know, the language that different groups use. Um, if it's okay for JFK to say it, then why isn't it okay for modern, young, tolerant people in a multicultural society to say it as well? Yeah, just to sort of chip in on that. So, I mean, the, what the young people were concerned about, the, the, this word radicalisation that is now in the ether and is used consistently by governments, by media, by academics, um, it, it, it gives the impression that if you were to, for example, want to talk about concerns around foreign policy, mm. talk about conflicts in the Middle East, that you would somehow be seen as, as on some kind of radicalization process. And it simply isn't the case. And the strength of this project was young people saying, absolutely not. We can be radical. We can talk about these topics. We can say things that are controversial, sometimes things that will upset people. Mm -hmm. But that's no basis for, for someone to think that we've been radicalized, which is hence reclaiming the word radical. And what this was, was, was young people um, commissioned to essentially um, own that word themselves and push back and say actually it's okay to talk openly and I think part of their anxiety when we first started talking to them about prevent and what was happening and who was involved and showing them what the plans were I mean transparency is absolutely key and, and in Leicester certainly all of the prevent plans and, and um, delivery uh, processes have been made available and published online um, but part of it was that they believed because of this straw man version of prevent which I think is probably louder and more prevalent in, in the public consciousness than prevent actually is um, gives the impression from some of our critics that no you can't say these things because prevent will knock on your door you can't say that because prevent will put you in a police cell you can't say that because you'll be criminalized if you if you if you dare utter concepts around foreign policy uh, and it simply isn't the case and it isn't true and the young people got that and they said okay let's take all of these taboo topics and let's not just talk about it, but let's push them openly as radical themes and conversations we want to have and need to have. And that was kind of the genesis of the project that they put together. But we, while there might be criticisms and understandable criticisms around what the word radicalization is, when we're looking practically at what prevent it does and what prevent is aiming to, to achieve, you're what would be the evidence base what exactly not what exactly is it that you're trying to achieve because you're in the pre-crime space in a way it's such a tricky um and morally questionable uh, for a lot of people uh, position to be in so what are you trying to achieve and what is success then uh, for you within the so uh, you it's interesting you use the phrase pre-crime 
because I, I, I push back on that frequently. Um, again, some of the critics have come out and said, uh, this is pre-criminal, this is the thought police, this is George Orwell's 1984, which he would turn his grave if he thought that's you know, what he was being sort of aligned with. Um, and then we get Tom Cruise, credited at us, and, and a, a mildly interesting Steven Spielberg movie called Minority Report, um, which, which I think puts the critics themselves in, into, the, into the realm of farce. But let's, if you, to unpick that phrase, we've been doing interventions, not we personally, but society has been doing interventions for young people or anybody in that, for that matter, who has got involved with a gang, for example, and is going down that pathway, not a conveyor belt, but as a metaphorically a journey in life, where they may well end up part of that gang and committing some horrific crime as part of an initiation ceremony or getting hurt or even killed themselves. So we have an intervention. We put our arm around them through a safeguarding process, very often using non-government organisations or charitable bodies who work separate to local government or local municipalities. Uh, and they will, they're experts in, in gang culture, uh, many of them probably former gang members, and they will put an arm around the individual and steer them away. That's the intervention. Mm -hmm. We do exactly the same when it's drugs. We do exactly the same for young girls getting involved in the sex industry. We view the radicalization process or, or people getting involved in extremism, rightly or wrongly, this is the UK approach and the CVE approach, we see it as a twofold approach. One is to tackle polarization in society, which sits more with the kind of cohesion y side of, of, of the house, which we've separated out um, a few years ago. Um, and the other one is, is that kind of safeguarding in intervention. It's a bit like the health, you know, the, the health model that you see. So the concept is A, it's more pro social, beneficial, and a lot less expensive to to prevent something from happening. So to prevent smoking, to prevent someone joining a gang, to prevent someone carrying a knife, to prevent them carrying a gun, to prevent them doing drugs, than it is to wait until that process has taken place. In which case the damage is done, you've got, uh, you've got to try and reverse that damage, and potentially they've crossed the line into criminality, hence the use of the phrase pre-crime. Um, and we don't want that because their life's in trouble, they're into the criminal justice system, and potentially we have victims of whatever crime it is they've committed. So it just makes sense to prevent people from going on that journey. That's, that's the simplicity around it. Um, use of phrases like pre-crime, whilst technically accurate, um, certainly in police parlance, um, um, are pretty unhelpful. And we don't see anyone talking about the work around gangs and gun denials and drugs and all those other social harms of being in the pre-crime space. We just see it as a good work that needs to be done to intervene in people's lives if and when we think they're, they're going astray. Because we see extremism and radicalization as a social harm, that is the, the approach that we take. Now, we could debate whether or not it is a social harm. We could debate whether extremism, I've seen it in inverted commas as recently as today in an article I was reading, uh, you know, what is extremism, as, what is it as a concept? Uh, and J.M. Berg has done an excellent book on extremism, which I think is, it, it's not, it's not perfect, sorry if he's listening, um, but it's a brilliant starting point for the, for the next sort of round of conversations about extremism. But I think he's pretty much nailed it on the head. And going by his definition, it feels like it's something we should be tackling. Um, and I, I make no apology for that because, because I mean, of the social it, care approach. To put it into context, the first prevent referral I ever had back in 2013 came via a psychiatrist who had been round all the houses, she didn't know where to go to for support for a particular case that she'd had. And when she finally got put through to our office, she told us that she was dealing with a young man. And in his previous counselling session, he had told her 
that he was having violent fantasies and was hatching a plot to make his own homemade explosives. And the words he said to her were, I want to do a Brevik. Mm -hmm. His plan was to make explosives, plant them in a random town centre in the Midlands, and then when the emergency services arrived, he wanted to pick people off with a shotgun. And this was a young lad who was so inspired by Anders Brevik, who had read his manifesto cover to cover, admired his military tactics, wanted to know what it felt like to kill people. Would he even feel anything at all? Now, when that was first reported to us, I, I'll be honest, I panicked. It was my first ever case. I didn't have a clue what to do. But one thing I knew was we couldn't arrest him because he hadn't done anything and we're not the thought police. So what do we as a society do when we're presented with an individual like that who has a, a propensity or, a, or a, a, a desire to commit mass violence, but there's no actual you know, evidence of a crime at that point? So we need to consider what the threat and the risk and the capability is in respect of that young man. You know, does he have access to firearms? Does he have military training, previous convictions, all of those sorts of things? And what we determined in the end was that he was actually crying out for help, spilled his guts to a psychiatrist. He was looking for help and support. And so we worked with him for about 18 months with his consent to try and steer him away from that violent path. So I, I don't think we should I certainly wouldn't think we should turn our back on cases like that. I think we're morally and duty bound to actually to do something to help people to turn their lives around. Now, whether he was going to go and commit the attack, who knows? But was his life made better as a result of prevent engagement? For sure it was, definitely. Yes, yeah, if I can jump in. So I, in my very early days, I worked with a lad who was involved with Al-Mahajaroon. And I, I mentioned it because I know you've had um, Michael Kenny on as well. Um, and his book is, is, is fascinating. I'd love to see the next iteration from sort of 2015 and the Declaration of the Caliphate the year before and, and what, what that looks like now. But this young lad had joined Al-Mahadjuru and he was involved with a clique within the group itself, um, many of whom then went on to be convicted of, of planning a terrorist attack. And he was kind of on the environs of this group, this clique. Um, and we worked with him. Um, Part of part of the work was to just to rehouse him because of some problems he had with his housing. Um, essentially, just to to, to show him a, an alternative path through life, where he wasn't going to become involved in violence. And had he stayed with that clique, uh, we it's fair to assume since every other member who stayed with that group was convicted of terrorism offences, um, that he probably would have got involved similarly. Now, when I last spoke to him. He was very grateful for Prevent, as you can imagine. We'd helped him out an enormous amount. Um, but he was absolutely adamant that the, the views he had regarding the British government had not changed. Uh, uh, conspiracy theories or not around intervention in the Middle East had not changed. Uh, his opinion of the UK foreign policy absolutely had not changed. The process with Prevent was not about trying to re-educate his mindset or change his worldview. It was about offering him some lawful pro-social alternatives to his activism, essentially, because we were worried that if he stayed with that group, he would end up either in prison or, or dead, essentially. Um, and we now know that a huge number of that group have also travelled overseas to join jihad in different countries and, and obviously joined, joined ISIS most famously. Um, so again, I, I cannot think other than that we've done well for that lad. And, and, and the reason I use him as an example is because there is a perception that, you know, the role of Prevent is to somehow sanitise a person's worldview or to 
or to wash their brain of wrong thoughts and, and tell them, no, the world's a happy place and, and you know, Big Brother is looking after you. It, it's just simply nonsense, John. Um, so for me, the measure of success was him, was that he disengaged with that group. In other cases, the measure of success is that they, they relinquish their attachment to an extremist organisation, whether that's national action or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or, or Al-Shabaab, whatever it may be. Um, they don't necessarily have to change their worldview, but they relinquish that attachment to organisations that promote and legitimise violence. Um, and whatever other underlying factors are uh, an issue, that we have gone some way to resolving them, if not completely resolve them, whether that's practical issues like this young lad and, and the housing situation, some issues he had with his family as well, or his extended family, um, or whether it's mental health provision, or whether it's a social care approach. And the lion's share of the cases we work with um, have some kind of engagement with statutory provision already because there are other issues at play in their lives uh, and that somehow manifests through the prism of extremism. It's that, that argument about disengagement versus de-radicalisation, I suppose. Um, and I, for one, don't see Prevent as a de-radicalisation programme because you know, we deal with people before they become extremists at the end of the day. So if someone disengages from violence or, or support for violence, then that, to be honest, I'll take that. It's a win for me. So, like, some really interesting individual cases there. And as you rightly pointed out, everyone's, everyone's course is different. So there has to be an individualized approaches. But with, even with that in mind, what would be the overall overarching evidence base that you have that prevent works? Where is the evidence? Uh, not just from one or two individual cases, but where's the broader evidence of what's been done by Prevent Works? I mean, that's, that, that's a big question. And I think one of the things that I'd be keen to see more of in the future is more um, work between practitioners and academics to try and build that evidence base, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think what we would judge the success of prevent and channel on would be through a, a vulnerability assessment framework which we use which is openly available on the government website in fact uh, we've actually presented it to local communities and um, youth groups and um, different organizations to uh, let them try their hand at, at it as well you know because that's basically a, a a framework which looks at the engagement, the intent and the capability factors around a particular individual. Um, and although, I don't want to say it's given a score, the, the score is certainly not as important as the content of what's on the framework itself. It's completed by somebody who has got specific knowledge of that individual in that case. And it looks at various issues like, you know, whether them and us thinking is present, whether there's dehumanizing of the enemy, what they're personal grievances are, whether there are any um, previous convictions, or a whole host of different factors that are that are looked at and assessed and then shared with our partners in order to gauge how vulnerable, how susceptible to extremism a person is. Once they have then received support through the channel process, intervention um, could be any number of things, mentoring could be education support, could be constructive pursuits and opportunities to try new hobbies or a mental health assessment etc etc once they've kind of completed that sort of channel journey the way in which we assess the success 
or otherwise of that is as Will already alluded to is we would review the case after six months and again after 12 months and if there's been no re-engagement or no recidivism into extremism then we would consider that to be a successful channel case. And the, I mean the question you asked John is a, is a fair question um, which is measure, measuring not just measuring success um, but being able to evaluate the programme itself. Um, it, it's easier I think if you take a step back and look at preventing its different constituent parts um, because whilst we have the prevent strategy, the, the different pieces of work that go on um, are all looking at slightly different things. So you've got projects that are um, raising awareness, for example, just around what is extremism, how does radicalization work as a process, um, how are grievances exploited to try and build resilience in, in young people in particular who are uh, saturated with information uh, online, some of it, a lot of it misinformation, misrepresentation or fake news as, as, as it's been called in the past. So you can, you can measure the success of that arm of prevent, if you like, that, that's, that strand of work by simply gauging whether you have raised awareness and increased understanding and built resilience in that respect. Um, you then got another um, tranche of work, which is around the referral process, uh, the disengagement process, and it's, it's relatively easy, I think, to measure if someone is disengaged from their extremist mindset. The, the, the process within um, the intervention is very open. I mean, it's an open and continuous dialogue with the individual. Uh, in the most serious cases, they have a mentor and they engage in dialogue with that mentor, becomes a trusted role model in their life. Um, it would be remarkable to go a year or more and somehow completely fool that person every single day of the week, and also to fool the other agencies that are working around you to support you and to fool your own family, etc., etc. So I think we can measure that fairly well. Um, and then you've got stuff that works in schools around more generic education uh, and we can measure whether that's successful or not. But we, we could also, with external evaluation, measure whether or not there are unintended consequences or unintended harms. So I think Joel Bush at the University of Coventry, Coventry did um, probably the most um, comprehensive study so far in schools. I think there are other um, academics looking at doing similarly. Um, and it's interesting because some of the academics have, have predisposed predis disposed that it's it's all bad and uh, they're kind of actively seeking out teachers who will tell them they don't like prevent and then you've got people like Joel and his team who come at you completely objectively and say I really want to understand what is happening here what is good what is bad what works what doesn't work and actually when he produced that paper um, I would say that overwhelmingly what he found that the the impact of preventing schools which has been raised as a specific concern was nothing like the naysayers were, were suggesting in fact, the complete opposite of sort of shutting down free speech, teachers were reporting that in the classroom, Prevent was being used as an opportunity to open up debates on really controversial topics and actually encouraging debate, encouraging speech, particularly around things like foreign policy, polarisation, government strategies, etc., etc. So you can measure um, and evaluate whether those are working and if there's any harm. So you can do it, so to sort of, sort of to look at it from the above and say, well, is Prevent working? Um, it's a fair question, but I think you have to look at the different constituent parts and assess whether each of those are working. I think there is a broader conversation, which obviously we're having an independent review of Prevent coming later in the year. I think August it probably will, will start, um, and which will do exactly that. So the last review was in 2010, um, looking at the, kind of the previous four and a half, five years of Prevent and saying, okay, what's happened, what's working, what's not working. This review has been a long time coming, but finally it's here. Uh, which will do exactly that. And it will be looking at that exact question that you've asked. Is it working? How do we measure if it's working? 
one thing I do want to say, and I guess this harks a little bit back to the critics again, there was a story during the rounds that said 95% of prevent projects failed to de-radicalise. Um, and it's, it's used time and time again now, that story. Now, I, I spoke to the journalist who wrote the story, uh, who concedes that actually she was slightly misled. But the, the evaluations were designed by the, by the external evaluator, were designed to measure uh, using um, um, questionnaires, um, psychometric testing, to measure attitudinal changes, particularly around attachment and legitimizing violence. Um, and those same questionnaires were put against, I think, 32 different projects, of which 28 were about raising awareness of extremism. So obviously, as a questionnaire measuring attachment to violence, it missed the mark on 28 of those projects. That statistic then got turned into, well, 28 of these projects failed because they didn't de-radicalize, de but that wasn't the purpose of the projects themselves. The projects that were there to try and reduce propensity for violence uh, were successful based on that, that questionnaire, the psychometric testing, which also was borne out in, in the article. Um, so we also, we, it's not just about making sure we evaluate what we're doing and make sure that our homework is marked. It's making sure that the evaluation fits whichever piece of work is being assessed and evaluated. But with that in mind, you mentioned about this, this new review that's coming up. Are you willing to accept whatever results come out of this? Are you, what, what, uh, what, however critical or supportive they will be? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that. I, do, I don't want to prejudge it. I don't want to second guess it. I look forward to it. Speaking personally, I don't know any prevent practitioner who isn't open to the idea of an independent review because not only will it sort of give us the opportunity to showcase some of the, the good work that we do, but also highlight areas that we can improve on. Mm -hmm. And we're not, you know, uh, we're not, uh, you know, we're humble enough to know that there are things that we can do better and things that we can improve on. And in fact, the, the, the research that Will alluded to just a couple of minutes ago, uh, Joel Busher and Thomas and Chowdhury, uh, is a really good example for me as to how we can improve and how prevent and authorities can work with academia. Because the reason I love that research isn't because it, it was a good news story for PREVENT and it shows that 70% of teachers were comfortable with PREVENT as a, as a safeguarding duty, but it was objective enough to actually highlight some of the areas where we can improve. So for example, it found um, that a number of Muslim school children felt stigmatized because PREVENT was perceived to focus on Muslims. And that's something then that we can work with and try and you know get our message out a little bit better. So that's where I see the value in both academic work and in this forthcoming independent review, not to sing our praises, but to actually help us, help us improve and help us do the right thing. I think the, the, the announcement of the review had some interesting responses. Uh, so my first response was to say, bring it on. Let's, let's, get our, you know, let's get someone else marking our homework. Let's have our critics' homework marked. Uh, and let's just see exactly what's and all what. Uh, an independent and objective view of PREVENT will look like. The fact that we as practitioners working PREVENT weren't kind of running for the corners of our room, cowering in, in, in shame that this independent review had been announced, had some of the critics immediately saying, ah, oh, well then it's, it's, it's a slam dunk, it's already been decided what the outcome will be. Which is actually not, we don't even know who the review is going to be yet, let, let alone what the outcome is. But the fact that practitioners are, as Sean says, humble enough to say, okay, 
let's look at what we do. Let's look at where you think we can improve. Let's look at where you think we really need to stop sort of a direction of travel. Um, let's look at potential unintended consequences. Let's look at the broader issues that, that people raise around human rights. Um, and let's see what an independent reviewer finds when they pull all that to pieces and put it back together again. Um, you know, in the last independent review or last review was done in, as I say, 2010, um, you know, and that found, for example, that um, the perception of prevent, because it was so focused on, uh, at the time, Al-Qaeda as, as the overarching threat, um, was predominantly focused on Muslim communities, because obviously Al-Qaeda were only targeting Muslim communities to try and recruit uh, for their cause. Uh, and so immediately the politicians who had sight of that review were like, well, then we need to broaden all horizons. We've got the EDL uh, were sort of 12 months old by this point um, and managing to get thousands of people on the streets. Far right ideology, which had been on the wane with kind of the BNP imploding, um, was, was seemed to be on the resurgence. Um, and so the policymakers said, then we need to broaden the horizons. Let's look at all forms of extremism. Let's focus on the ones that are the overriding threat. Uh, and let's stop trying to run it from central government. Let's give local authorities, local municipalities, the money and the resources they need because they understand their local areas better than central government does. Let's give them the resources to do what they need to do and design their own programs, design their own plans and do their own engagement with their own communities. Uh, and as a result of that sort of 2011 rewrite, Prevent came out fairly threat agnostic. So if you're working you know, in, an, in a city in East London, you potentially have got a greater Islamist threat there than if you're working in you know, Derbyshire Dales, for example, um, where the right-wing threat is greater, or in Lincolnshire. Um, so, and I'm not casting aspersions on either of those two, those two counties, I'm just giving you examples. Um, so it, it really, in 2011, said, this is working, let's keep it going. This needs to be better, let's improve it. Uh, this, is, this is wrong, this needs to change. And, and it changed and it adapted. Um, and I, I think for me, what's, what has been interesting about the announcement of this review is that some people that have been, been clamoring for this review for, for what's else, since 2015, so some four years now, have got it. And now they're panicking and they're starting to say, no, let's scrap prevent. Forget the review, let's just scrap prevent. And I find that interesting that that's the journey they've been on because it suggests to me that they're now worried that that review will mark their homework too. And some of the misrepresentations of Prevent that have been put out there, um, and they'll be held to account over that. And if, if young people in schools are afraid to talk about foreign policy because the perception is that Prevent is gonna knock on their door at three in the morning, well, that is not something Prevent has ever done. We've not created that perception. And the people that have created that perception will be called to task over it. Well, a lot of these critics that you're, you're talking about, the critics that you're focusing on are the critics at the most extreme end. Mm. But there are critics who are making constructive criticisms mm. as well. Um, so do you need not need to engage with them more of it? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, my, uh, my plea would be, and I'm sure they will anyway, um, would be to engage with the independent review when it comes along. And engage with us as well. Reach out to us and speak to us. We've talked to no end of um, academics um, who uh, have, have a varied uh, number of different views on Prevent, but we're more than happy if we have the time to sit and, mm. and wax lyrical about the work that we do, if, if we can be of any help. Um, I get that there are a lot of um, critics out there who I would suggest are perhaps a little bit disingenuous and dishonest, and many of them hide behind pseudonyms on Twitter and things like that, and I try not to bother too much with those ones. 
But anybody who is objective and open-minded enough and sensible enough to sit down and have a polite conversation with, I'll be there all day long. One of the, you, you mentioned, though, as well, that when there was this previous review done that was broadened out to really include the far right a bit more and to include all, all threats, but it doesn't include the threats from Northern Ireland at all. We're here in the days after the murder of Lyra McKee. We've got threats from violentism and republicanism. There's still loyalist paramilitary groups there as well. Prevent doesn't touch that at all. Why not? Well, it does here in England. I've, I've had three Irish-related cases that I've been involved with um, from people who are living in England who have had um, sympathies with... Um, I think all three cases were in respect. No, one was loyalist and two were Republican related. Mm. Um, but the prevent duty itself only applies to England and Wales. And it's a question that we often get asked, why is there no prevent in Northern Ireland? Um, a couple of reasons for that. The most basic one is that the powers and responsibilities for policing crime and justice have been devolved to the Storm Assembly, which hasn't done a great deal for the last couple of years, sadly. Um, and so if Prevent were to become legislation back at home, then that would be a decision that they need to take locally. Um, the other thing I would say is that given the history of conflict back home and the great work that already takes place from various different organisations and community groups, I think of a lot of the cross-community work that takes place, a lot of the mentoring that already takes place, a lot of it already looks like Prevent anyway. And so I would imagine that there's probably no, you know, no um, massive need at this point in time to reinvent the wheel. Um, but that's, that's, that's the simple answer I can give as to why there's no prevent in Northern Ireland. It's take up with Stormont, basically. Yeah. Just, just very quick, I mean, it's similar in Scotland. So they don't yeah. have the, the prevent strategy as, as we have it here in England. They have something that is, you know, you squint it, it's almost identical, but they have chosen as a devolved government to implement that and to implement it in the way that they see fit. Uh, it just so happens that actually in its evolution in Scotland, it's almost identical to the Prevent in, in England and Wales. In order for something like Prevent to work, it needs to be trusted. It needs to be trusted by the communities um, in which Prevent uh, coordinators are operating in. And historically, there have been issues around that. There have been issues around whether Prevent is, uh, is trusted. How... Does that affect your day-to-day -day jobs? Um, and how has that been taken into consideration in relation to changes to, to be made? Well, on a day-to-day on a -day level, to be perfectly honest, I see a bit of a disconnect between the national perception of Prevent and how it's perceived locally by the people and communities that we work with. Because at a grassroots level, if I'm in a school, if I'm at a community centre, I don't often hear the kind of highfalutin political debates that we see on a national level. And in my experience, those people who have had some practical experience of what Prevent is like on the ground and see it for what it is, come to support it. And so I would imagine you could go to near enough any region in the UK where people would invariably say, oh, you know, my local Prevent team is actually really good. They do some good work, but I'm not so keen on the, the national stuff, but almost every... <laughs> every local area would say that. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So I, I definitely think that there's much more acceptance at a grassroots level of Prevent than is oftentimes represented. And I think one of the major issues that we've had over the last number of years has been that, and I guess 
we've partly got ourselves to blame for this. When there's not through design or intention, but when there's a lack of transparency and openness about some of the processes and the work that we do, bearing in mind that we're dealing with confidential safeguarding issues, so there's only so much we can really say anyway. Um, but when that leaves a void for other people to fill the vacuum with their own narratives to the point where that gets to dominate, it's kind of difficult to pull that back from a PR point of view. Now, certainly in recent years, there has been much more openness from the likes of the Home Office and from police prevent teams and things like that, and that's to be welcomed. Um, but I do think that it's a shame that the kind of the negative case studies and some of the some of the mo some of the less fair criticisms and some of the myths and misconceptions have had been allowed to fester for so long to the point where they went unchallenged that it's kind of left that we've got a bit of work to do to kind of rebuild that trust. But I see that trust being rebuilt at a local level every day, and certainly. I can tell you now, in the individuals that we deal with and that we have helped, who may have been a little bit tentative or dismissive of Prevent from the outset, and then once they've seen this kind of support that it can offer them. I had, I mentioned this on Twitter a few weeks ago, I've had two people say to me in recent months that they believe Prevent saved their lives, you know? Um, I spoke to one young lad recently who was on the verge of, well, he wasn't on the verge, he was well immersed in groups like um, Britain First and the EDL, who said that uh, he didn't know what Prevent was until he, he had some meetings with his mentor. And essentially what his mentor did was he helped him take, <laughs> I need to be careful how, what I say, I don't, I don't know if we're allowed to curse this, but he said his, his mentor, curse away. I'm going to use polite language, he said that his, his mentor helped him remove his head from his backside. Uh, that wasn't the language he used per se. But that's it in pretty straightforward terms. Someone who A, didn't know about Prevent, B, was initially suspicious of, of it, actually came to see it for what it was. And, and I'd say that goes for most people who actually have direct experience of it at a, at a local level. One of the elements of Prevent that we, that we see, um, this, is, this is seen in nurseries, this is seen in secondary schools all the time it's this promotion of British values and that's a core element does having language like that actually and you've, you've mentioned examples from the far right as well as um, as well as from uh, the Muslim community that the examples of, of referrals you've had but does having language like referring to fundamental British values that's, does that not in a way legitimise some of the narrative that the far right themselves are using as well. And how does that affect those issues around, around trust, for example? So I, I, was, um, I was involved in some of the early conversations about that phrase, British values. Um, and as practitioners, um, and this is going to get me in trouble, I'm sure, if the wrong people listen to this. As practitioners, we pushed back on it. Yeah. And we said, you are talking about values that are core to a lot of people in a lot of countries around mm -hmm. democracy, around uh, the rule of law, a common law that is equitable across the spectrum, no matter what your race, colour or creed. Um, uh, individual liberty, essentially aligning itself with the Equalities Act. And we were absolutely adamant. There was, there was about 15 of us around a table in, uh, in government. And we unanimously said, 
don't use the phrase British values. Mm. Because while majority of people will agree with the values that then follow in that definition, the phrase British value will, will get stuck in people's throats. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did. It's British um, exceptionalism in a way. Right? Yeah, and, 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 and only, I mean, I don't, I don't think it does play into the far right because actually what we're seeing from far right is, is intolerance of people's yeah. you know, individual liberties and faith and belief. So I don't, I don't think it does tie into that. And there might, again, it might be a perception by some that by using the phrase British values, it, it's, it's a kind of a jingoism, if you like, that the far right will latch onto. I, I don't think we've seen that. If anything, they, they are also... Um, suspicious or cynical of prevent because so their 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 take on prevent is it is and we are somehow indoctrinating children with Islam at school quite how they've joined the dots to get to that conclusion I don't know because on the other side of the spectrum we're being told that prevent is is removing Islam from 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 sort of religious conservative children so um, and the whole thing's just a nonsense but I, I absolutely get where you're coming from with the phrase British values. Um, and what I've, I've done sort of talks on and prevent training sessions that are two hours long and we literally spend an hour on the first slide debating the term British values. Um, and we have to, you know, I learned as a, as a skill to say, okay, ignoring that for a moment, let's look at the values we're talking about. Is there any disagreement here? And there was, there was no disagreement. Um, so I, I think as a phrase, it's unhelpful. I absolutely think it's unhelpful. In the counter-extremism strategy, which is slightly separate to prevent, um, the word British has been removed. It says yeah. our fundamental values. Uh, so maybe that was government learning its lesson from that. I don't know. Um, and I, I'm, I'd need to double check. But I think in the revised prevent strategy from last year, July, I think the phrase British values has been removed there. Uh, as yeah, well. they've kind of walked it back a wee bit. So in contest, they refer to the values of our society. And the latest Keeping Children Safe in Education guidance revised back in September, that refers to the values of our society. I've got to be in my bonnet about this terminology, I have to say. It winds me up in the wind. I mean, I think it's um, a mistake to label values as British when you've got a considerable number of the population who don't necessarily identify first and foremost with being British. You know, I include myself in that, obviously. Um, if anyone's heard me speak before, they'll know that I often tell a wee joke about how um, when I was wee growing up, I used to get asked regularly, are you British or Irish? And back at home, that was a really incendiary question. And depending on your answer, you could get a kicking. Um, and I used to think, well, I don't really have a problem with either. I thought you could be Scottish and British, you could be Welsh and British, so why can't you be Irish and British? So I just said, yeah, I'm both. Just meant I got a kicking all the time, unfortunately. But what what we try to get people to do is see the values for what they actually are, not what they're called. Um, I remember being at a CAGE meeting last year where one of the speakers was talking about why do we not talk about respect in schools anymore? When I was young, it used to be respect your elders, respect your teachers, da 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 da. And I politely made the point that respect for diversity is <laughs> and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs, that's one of the, the British values that you've been lambasting for the past half hour. So, you know, it's there. I guess that I'm not sure that a counter terrorism strategy is is the prism through which we should be trying to promote these basic values because at the end of the day it's all about being a decent polite respectable sensible person you know so when i give advice to schools and to nurseries and to childminders and all of these different organizations it's if you want to promote british values in your setting for goodness sake don't you know deck the halls with union flags and drink tea on the queen's birthday and all of that kind of stuff. i mean if they want to have, fill their boots do you know what i mean but that would just be paying lip service to what the values actually are. 
if you can ensure that the children in your setting have a voice, that they're listened to, that they're allowed to present their views, that they take turns with things, you have a school council, you give to charity, that you promote their confidence and their self-esteem, bread and butter stuff that I, teachers don't need me to tell them about, you know? But that's British values in action, do you know what I mean? So I don't care what you call them, as long as you're promoting democracy and tolerance and everything else that goes along with it, then, then I don't see the issue. But we didn't do ourselves any favours by allowing us to get dragged into that debate in the first place. One of the key aspects of Prevent that we're actually going to be dealing with it in next week's episode when we look at Prevent, the Prevent Duty in higher education is this Prevent Duty. And when you look at it, there's an obligation on people working in higher education, social workers, other professionals as well. Um, and you, re- you referred to a psychiatrist earlier on who uh, referred your very first... Uh, yeah, although that, that was before it was a legal duty. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. but it's a similar situation mm. that, um, that we're going through now. Do you feel that this duty can in ways impede these professionals from doing their primary job? Um, in that they having to... Say if you take, for example, in higher education, if... By having to having that duty there, it can impede possibility of debate. By having the duty for social workers, it can impede their um, their primary duty as a social worker as well. This is one of the things that would be said consistently about the prevent duty. How do you feel? Well, the first thing to say is that it's an organisational duty, not an individual one in the first place. So it's not the individual teacher, social worker, lecturer who's going to get hold over the coals for not implementing Prevent. It's it's a duty on the organisations themselves. So no one's going to get, you know, criticised for not, you know, we're not looking for people to, to be secret agents of the government, sneaky beaky people looking for the warning signs of extremism. For me, the reason Prevent became a legal duty in the first instance was simply to provide that kind of base standard of safeguarding that can be applied consistently across the board nationally so that every region has their channel panel, which meets monthly, which is chaired by the local authority. None of it is intended to be onerous or interfere with someone's day job. There are no major extra responsibilities that it expects of people other than to follow their existing safeguarding procedures so if somebody has got a concern as long as they know who they need to talk to if they notice it then essentially they're they're doing prevent it's just an extension of of everyday safeguarding and as for the debate over you know freedom of speech and, and shutting down debate i mean the prevent duty actually states in black and white terms that schools and academic institutions are expected to be safe spaces where sensitive topics like terrorism can be discussed Um, Prevent isn't about banning speakers from going to a university campus. Speaking personally, I've never banned a speaker or requested a speaker to be banned. And yet we have, you know, anti-prevent events at colleges up and down the country. There are, you know, dubious individuals who have spoken at many university campuses. Um, What Prevent tries to do in certain cases is to mitigate any risks that there may be in order to ensure that an open debate can take place and that nothing illegal takes place and that hate speech isn't promoted and any of those sorts of things. It's not about trying to stop someone from coming to a university campus, but if somebody does want to speak, it's like, okay, 
who's invited? Is there a balanced panel? Uh, will the person sign up to equality legislation? Do the organisers know what they're going to talk about? Will different points of view be able to be heard? All of those sorts of things. So for me, I'd almost flip that on its head. I'd say that Prevent promotes freedom of speech. I think that Prevent tries to introduce shades of grey when people who are confounded by extreme ideologies tend to see things in very clear-cut, black-and-white, simplistic terms. Um, we try to encourage them to think critically about things and to question things and to not... Um, to, to be open to different points of view and, and uh, to not you know, let go of their social or political activism. So, yeah. You've probably got more to add. Yeah, you? so, I mean, just to echo what Sean said about the, the, the obligation of the duty, it is not on individuals, it's on the institution itself. And to create that ethos um, around safeguarding in, 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 in realms of extremism and radicalisation, to my knowledge, there is only one social harm where you are legally obliged as an individual to pick up that phone and make a report, and that is female genital mutilation. In all other areas of safeguarding and social harm, it's about applying the institution's safeguarding policy, which will cover a whole range of social harms, of which radicalisation is just one of those um, within the entire kind of policy. So the, the obligation is on the school, the college, the university. Uh, and in terms of does it impede professionals, I think the perception that they are somehow some kind of James Bond character now would impede them. But again, that's not the perception that Prevent itself has put out. That's not the perception practitioners who support these institutions has put out. The guidance, if they read it, certainly doesn't say that. It's very clear that it's the institution's obligation. And it's quite, it lays out in, within the guidance ways in which you could fulfil, as an institution, fulfil that legal duty. Um, and just in, you know, in terms of the, the free speech issue, so there was uh, an event at the university that was an anti-prevent event. Um, and someone who was attending, one of the students, contacted me out of the blue. I don't know how they got my number. They contacted me out of the blue and said that they'd been to some of the community meetings we'd held. And they felt that this was going to be a, kind of a torpedo into the side of prevent. There was going to be no alternative voice uh, or challenge to some of the views that were going to be there. One of the organisations that was attending to attack prevent uh, if you go back historically, have some really uncomfortable connections with Al-Qaeda even. And this individual said, you need to be on this platform. I will speak to the student body who are putting it together and ask for you to be there. They said, no, we don't want an alternative voice on the platform. We don't want it to be a debate. Um, and so he then went back and said, okay, what if he's in the audience and at least he gets to sort of respond to some of the challenges or, or even ask some questions. No, we don't want people who are positive about preventing the audience even. We just want... Um, students that we can talk to with, with our own kind of message. Well, if that's not shutting down debate, mm -hmm. I don't know what... And this was an anti-prevent initiative who absolutely did not want debate, did not want challenge. Partly, I think, think because their arguments don't hold water. Sean has intended in some of these community events where prevent is, is kind of besmirched and really swiftly and very simplistically unpicked their arguments because they, they, they don't really bear, bear any real scrutiny um, so I, I don't think the duty in itself is, is as controversial as people make out and I do think it's important to look at the genesis of where it came from because it didn't just get created in a vacuum it was conceived towards the end of 2014 just months after ISIS had established the caliphate so-called caliphate and what we had was an industrial scale of propaganda coming out from the different sort of um, 28, 29 or so media outlets across 
Syria and Iraq. They were then uh, in a kind of a swarming mechanism were being disseminated across social media platforms, messaging platforms, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, Twitter, um, to, to reach as many young people as possible. And a lot of this propaganda was aimed at teenage boys, kids who played Call of Duty, kids who played Grand Theft Auto. They even mimicked the, the, the visuals of those games and the language of those games as well. And we were in a situation where we had um, terrorist propaganda reaching into the bedrooms of teenage boys who were thinking, well, that looks a bit more interesting than my day. I think I need to explore this group called ISIS. And we were in a situation where some schools were saying, we're not prepared to refer if there's radicalization taking place. We don't agree that we should be involved in any form of counterterrorism, whether it's safeguarding or not. And the government response was, we cannot have a postcode lottery around safeguarding people against radicalization. You can't be safer in Leicester than you are in Bognor um, when the, the threat is, is omniscient across social media. So the response to that was to create this prevent duty. With respect to the people of Bognor, obviously. Oh, with respect to the people of Bognor. But it, it, it essentially created a minimum, a, a level playing field and a minimum bar to do the bare minimum to uphold the, the safeguarding concerns around radicalization. This is what you should be doing as an institution, not as an individual, as an institution. And that's where it came from, because you were literally in a situation where some schools were really good at making referrals if they had concerns. Others were not very good and needed some help to reach that minimum bar. And others were flat out refusing to get involved. Um, and if you look at the university side, so if you look at, at, at higher education, the tactics of some of these organizations, I mean, Hizbut Tahrir in the past, National Action mimicked it as well. Um, people who are sympathetic to Al-Qaeda did the same. Some of these groups that, that are sort of more famous now for being anti-prevent, they certainly target university students as well, because that's that real kind of activist age as teenagers where, uh, and, and sort of into early adulthood where um, we want to, you know, we want to save the world, we want to make everything right, we want to we change it for the better. Uh, we want to be radical about those changes as well. So these groups have purposely targeted universities for that exact reason. And what the duty in higher education is saying is, well, if these groups are targeting university, it's not about stopping them from coming. It's about making sure there is challenge, making sure that these debates, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, are, are, are fair and the views that are antithetical to, to those shared values around democracy and individual liberty, etc., are, are the alternative argument is put forward. There was a, and I know there's been a recent court case, and sort of headlines were sort of cast out saying, oh, prevent duty is, is deemed to be uh, unlawful. That's actually not what the judgment said. The judgment said that this paragraph in the entire document is unlawful because it goes beyond guidance to a level of prescription that is, which is not now guidance. Uh, so that needs to be either removed or rewritten. Uh, and that, that's, that, you know, behind the headline is actually, you know, 16 or 17 words are not right and need to be either changed or removed. Um, but in terms of the, the rest of the duty on higher education, it's not unlawful. And actually, it is guidance for the institution. And the fact that they might have a duty around freedom of speech as well as a duty around prevention of radicalization, as an institution, they have to balance those two duties. And as long as they are doing that and can be seen to be doing that, even if they make the decision to go ahead with a speaker that some might be concerned about, as long as they can show that they've had that, that, that balance, that discussion as to where do we need, do we need to land here, then that's absolutely fine. Mm. Uh, and to my knowledge, no institution has been held to account for um, not complying with the prevent duty. And if I could just 
digress and tell another quick story uh, but this was a referral that did come from a higher education institution and it was before Prevent became a legal duty whereby we had a young uh, female revert to Islam who uh, had threatened to blow up the university library and was having heated debates with people in terms of her support for ISIS which was um, in the early stages at that particular time and we ended up with two separate referrals one from a group of students and one from the institution itself and during the course of the support for this individual, what they actually found through a mental health assessment was that she had had a previously undiagnosed social communication disorder. And I, I don't understand the, the practical ins and outs of it, but from, you know, from my layman's perspective, what appeared was that she basically said things as she thought them. So as she was having internal debates in her head about whether or not ISIS were truly Islamic, saying that out loud, put passers-by in a bit of distress and felt that this was somebody who advocated support of ISIS. Um, we were quite open about the support that we gave her. We worked with the institution and she had one-to-one -one support through their student services as well. And it actually got to the stage where the students, once they became aware of what her situation was, actually rallied around her and formed a mini support group so that if she received abuse on the campus or if she said something that was taken out of context, she had a group of students who would actually step in and defend her and her, her, her classmates and her lecturers were actually able to look out for her welfare while she was attending classes. And that to me is essentially what it's all about. I don't think she was ever at risk of actually becoming an extremist. But again, it's one of those situations where her, her life on campus became much, much better. So while we have some really interesting cases, some really interesting stories that you've told of successes, someone could quite easily turn to some high-profile case in recent years of people who have been through Prevent but who still have gone on to engage in violent extremism, to get, engage in terrorism. So in the same way that you're both utilising these cases as evidence of success, mm -hmm. Does that not as well, do these, these individuals, persons, the person's green attack, for example, could that not as easily be used to, um, to show the failures of, of Prevent? Well, uh, in theory, yes, but I think our success rate is, is over 80%. We don't claim to have a 100% success rate. Um, in, in terms of Parsons Green, it, it was not the process that was was at fault. It was the fact that the process that exists and is robust and works everywhere else in the country was not actually followed. Mm. Um, so it was a breakdown of process, not, not policy on that. And, on I, that and I think the fact that, I mean, there are lots of lessons to be learned from that particular case, there's no doubt. But I think the very fact that he was picked up at all in the first instance was interesting. I think working in Prevent or working in the security service, you're often damned if you do, damned if you don't. An attack takes place or something happens. First question that gets asked, was this person known to authorities? If the answer is yes, oh gosh, then what were you doing about it? If the answer is no, that's even more worrying as far as I'm concerned. So I think that the very fact that some of these individuals have been um, spotted by Prevent in the first instance and the support maybe hasn't worked or wasn't followed correctly or whatever the case may be, there are other outlets that, that you know, Prevent isn't the panacea. It's not the silver bullet that's going to cure all ills, um, you know, but, we do our best, but sorry, I, I interrupted. Yeah, I mean, there's a few cases we get of disguised compliance where people yeah. sort of pretend to go along with, with the programme 
in one case uh, that's been reported on very recently, uh, the young person actually felt a sense of notoriety by saying, I'm, I'm on the Prevent programme. Um, Bear in mind, through all of this, it, it's, a, it's a voluntary programme. He could have stepped off at any point if he, if he was really so inclined. Um, as Sean says, it's not a panacea. We, we don't claim that we can, we can stop all, all cases. What we can do, and as we have done with Parsons Green, is, is have essentially the equivalent of a serious case review and say, OK, yeah. what went wrong here? Was it the policy? Was it the process? Where were the failings? Was it a person responsible? Was it, was it uh, a partnership, a breakdown in communication and partnerships, which I think was also the case here? And if so, how do we learn from that? And actually, and because that was such a serious case, um, the government had to respond in a formal letter um, to the select committee as to what, what they were going to do about this and what improvements could be made. And that letter was passed to every single local authority in the country saying, you know, this has never happened on your watch but it needs to never happen on your watch. So yeah. these are the lessons we think need to be learned from this. You know, test yourselves. Are you as rigorous as you think you are? Let's put some case studies before you as a, as a mock panel, if you like. How would you respond in this? And actually in the East Midlands, we, we now hold twice a year um, exactly that, where we come together and, and test ourselves as a, as a network of, of partners, uh, stress test, if you like, the, the relationships, the processes, um, as to whether or not they would work. Now, if an individual then chooses to to sort of go along, quote unquote, with the program um, uh, and have no intention of really engaging with, with, with the work, um, then that's one of those people that I guess will slip through the net. But the, this perception that you know, because uh, one person slips through the net, that, that the whole the whole policy then should be you know, overhauled or, or scrapped. Um, I think is a bit of a misnomer. And, and when I speak to people who work in, in, the, in the world of gangs and, and, and drugs in particular, and they look at our kind of 80 plus percent success rate, they're absolutely goggle-eyed as to, as, to, as to how we do it. And we don't try and stop their work with gangs. We don't try and stop NGOs who are trying to draw people away from drugs because some of the people they work with end up getting addicted to drugs. Um, and it, it's, for me, it's the same with Prevent. I, I, I do feel that we, we over-complicate and over-politicise Prevent. But I also concede that it is inherently political because of what it's trying to achieve. And all of this goes back to that question that was at the very beginning about the broader evidence base. Because when there is, when there is a reaction of, okay, how is Prevent being successful? And there's identified individual legitimate success cases. It, it then doesn't provide that broader evidence base and, say, and it sets up the possibility of something like Parsons Green being put forward as this is the, this, if you're able to identify individual cases that are successes, then here are individual cases that are failures as well. And that's why we need that broader evidence base as well. And you mentioned, Will, about lessons learned and we've, we've, we're coming to a close here now. Both of you have been involved with Prevent for, for, for a number of years now. What have been the core lessons that, that both of you have learned um, individually, but with the, within the teams that you, you've been working on as well in relation to Prevent? Wow. What a, I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> That's a good I mean, I guess the core thing I have learned, I have to say, is that it does sound a wee bit corny, but I've never felt like I've made more of a difference in anything I've ever done than when I worked in Prevent. 
Um, it sounds silly to say it out loud, but that's why I can go to sleep at night and that's why the critics don't detract me from what I'm doing because I know I can put my hand on my heart and say that I'm trying to do the right thing, not always getting it right, but I've seen enough cases where people's lives have been genuinely turned around by the work that we've done. Now I've come at this from a fairly cynical police background, you know, working in CID and major crime and things like that, dealing with offenders day in, day out, seeing the very worst in people, seeing very little changes made in terms of, you know, prolific offenders and stuff like that, seeing how difficult some of that some of that work is. And yet when you can look at some of the individual cases we've dealt with and society may look at potential extremists as, you know, potential monsters or psychopaths and take this really sort of stereotypical, dim-witted view of things. When we actually treat people as individuals, as human beings, and we work with them on a one-to-one -one basis, you know, it's it's so rewarding. There's one lad I dealt with, I remember he, he used to say how if he was walking on the same side of the road as a person of colour, he would cross the road. Um, he had a fascination with things that went bang. He wanted to make explosives. He wanted to kill Muslims, essentially. Um, he went through the prevent process. He had a brilliant bond with his mentor. And he is now engaged to be married to a girl from Jamaica. And they have a mixed-race child together. Um, stuff like that. We, we can't shout it from the rooftops often enough because, like I said before, we, we deal with confidential safeguarding issues. But, you know, I personally just like feeling that we are trying to make a difference, bottom line. So, it's, yeah, it's been a long time. It's been 11 years this week um, that I've been working in Prevent. And for me, it's been, it's, it's highs and lows. So I will never forget, um, as Sean says, when, when you, you've worked with somebody who has turned their life around, disengaged from... Uh, violent extremist group or disengaged from um, legitimizing violence to being a you know, really well-rounded and actually a, a real positive activist on a lot of the issues that they were already concerned about and the grievance they were concerned about but they're putting such a positive spin on how they're going to change the world um, you know it, it is genuinely uplifting I know it does sound sort of glib or corny but but it, it is but at the same time I, I remember sitting in the living room of somebody who was, and this wasn't Prevent, I just, I bumped into him, we got chatting. Um, and he told me his, that he'd been arrested as part of a, a terrorism investigation. And I met him at a community meeting. So I went round his house the following day and we had a bit of a chat and I explained what Prevent was because he, it was counter-terrorism and he made him very nervous because of experiences. And he told me how he'd been held without charge uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, very little contact with his wife who was pregnant. Um, and in fact, the only way that she could um, find out really what was going on day to day was by listening to a particular news channel to the point that to this day, if she hears the jingle for that news channel, she's physically ill. And it made me, and this was in my first 12 months of Prevent, and it made me come at this with the position of, you know, first do no harm. We cannot have a counter-terrorism policy, whether it's embedded through safeguarding or investigation, that does wrong by people who, who, who are perfectly innocent or have, have no real concerns about them. And 
I went to that particular meeting with a colleague of mine who I was training up to to, uh, to work alongside me, and we were two fully grown men, uh, me in my late 30s, him in his um, early 40s, and we looked at each other when we got in the car after that meeting, and we were both had tears in our eyes, and we did not say a word for the 25-minute journey back to work to pick up our respective cars. It, it was a really sobering um, experience, and it's made me come at CVE and prevent um, with that always in my mind. Whatever we do, we need to make things right, and we need to do right by those around us. In terms of lessons learned, um, for me, uh, anyone, uh, you know, we, um, we both work sort of around Europe and elsewhere advising uh, other local authorities and sometimes even governments on their own CVE programs. And if they're building them from scratch, it's to make sure they're tackling polarization of society at one end and radicalization of individuals at the other end, but doing it across the spectrum of all forms of extremism. You know, it's, it's a given now that in the early sort of couple of years of Prevent, um, it came in it with too much of a, of a security focus. Uh, it was focused only on Al-Qaeda and it was driven by the police. And that was the wrong approach. And we are still to this day, all these years later, feeling the heat from that initial legacy. Even though the policy has changed so dramatically, we still feel the heat from Prevent version one. Um, so from the outset, build it from a safeguarding perspective across all forms of extremism and, you know, be transparent. You know, yeah. open up your, not just your conclusions, but your working out to the communities you're trying to work with, because you can't really go too far wrong if you do it in consultation with communities. But to do that, you need to be transparent. Well, Will, Sean, thank you so much for being our guests on today's episode of Talking Terror. For anyone who wants to know more about Prevent, I would encourage you to listen to all sides and not just to read the headlines, but to read in depth, to listen to not just what people like Will and Sean are saying, listen to the critics as well. Look at the evidence and come to your own decisions as well based on that. And really question everyone, question on all sides. Don't just be taking it from one side or the other. Um, and hopefully today's episode has given an insight uh, into, into what Prevent does from people who are involved in coordinating Prevent at a local and regional level as well. Next week, we're going to be talking to two academics, Sean McDade and Catherine McGlynn from the University of Huddersfield, who have looked at the Prevent duty in higher education as well. And um, I, I think it links up quite well to today's episode. So until then, if you want to get that 35% discount from bloomsbury.com from the Middle East and politics section, be sure to use the offer code TALKINGIBT19 and do apply for our Masters in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies at Royal Holloway Universities of London. No matter if you're a professor, lecturer, whatever you are, and you've got Masters and PhDs already, you can never have too many. So um, be sure to check that out and uh, talk to you all soon.